Even for avid supporters of Ukraine like me, Ukrainian literature remains an undiscovered country. Today, I'm speaking with Uyam Blacker, who can guide us on that journey of discovery to engage with Ukrainian culture and identity. Ukrainian literature has a strong tradition of folktales and oral poetry and has been influenced, of course, by the country's complex political and cultural history, including periods of colonization and national struggle. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like, subscribe and definitely add comments because it really helps with YouTube to get new people to discover the videos we produce. Also, you'll know the drill here as well. We include links to verified Ukrainian charities in the description of each video. I encourage you to check those out and look at ones that are really going to help Ukraine in the current situation. That might be helping veterans. It might be something of more a sort of military uh, type application, but please do check that out. Ukraine needs our help. Oyun Blacker is an associate professor in the Comparative Culture of Eastern Europe at the School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies at UCL, University College London. He's the author of Memory, the City and the Legacy of World War II in East Central Europe. He's also translated the work of many Ukrainian authors, including Oleg Sensor's short story collection, Life Went On Anyway. His translations of novels by Taras Prakaska and Mike Johansson will be published in the Harvard Library of Ukrainian Literature series. In fact, this may well have happened already. I'll ask in a minute. His translations have also appeared in many anthologies and journals, including the White Review, Modern Poetry and Translation, and Words Without Borders. Welcome to the channel, and please do correct anything that was uh, in the introduction that may be inaccurate. No, thank you so much uh, for the invitation. It was it was all correct, all correct. Oh, fantastic. Well, good. I'm glad the uh, university websites are, are kept up to date. Well, we're going to, of course, we're going to dive into literature, but of course we have to relate it back to politics and history, don't we? Because the history of Ukrainian literature is not just about finding a voice. It's often been about preserving uh, that voice uh, in, in, in the face of terrible events, oppression, and, and often persecution. And uh, many writers have paid, I guess you could say, the ultimate price for their art. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, if you look at the development of Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian literature, it has basically always existed under some kind of political pressure. Um, you know, only really since 1991 have... Ukrainian writers being able to work under conditions in which they are in a in, a, in an independent state in which they are entirely free to write whatever they want um, about the state in which they live, um, and it's quite remarkable really to think about that. So that's only really been the case for um, just over three decades. Um, mostly, of course, that means rule from Moscow, um, whether. Uh, in the Soviet Union or from uh, St. Petersburg and the Russian Empire. But, uh, you know, parts of Ukraine have been in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, also under uh, Poland, if we go further back. So Ukrainian culture has always had to contend with some kind of exterior forces uh, sort of impinging on Ukraine uh, politically and culturally to, to a greater or lesser degree. And that has... 
in many ways uh, define the development of that culture and that literature, that there is this kind of spirit of um, resistance, this spirit of um, kind of defiance, um, but also a, a sort of spirit of, I would say, irreverence um, towards uh, power, towards authority, this kind of uh, in Ukrainian culture and the Ukrainian character, I would say there's there's a kind of inbuilt um, inbuilt lack of respect for authority and kind of rebelliousness, uh, which is uh, which is it's really there in from the beginnings of Ukrainian literature right up until um, until the present day. Um, and as you say, it's it's um it's often been a a very difficult a very repressive climate especially when we talk about uh the soviet union you know the 1930s probably been the peak of this but um you know we we can talk about arrests um and uh, exile of writers under the under the russian empire um you know the various kinds of repressive policies against the language uh, that go back into the 19th century um but when we get to the 1930s especially you know we're talking about the mass murder of um cultural figures um so it's it, it's been something that has really been something that ukrainian cultures had to kick against and fight against um but you know what, what we see is that it's not you know, Ukrainian literature is not necessarily just a literature of national struggle and and, and kind of fighting for national rights. It, it manages quite remarkably, I think, even in those very, very difficult conditions to be very varied, very um, diverse. It covers all kinds of topics beyond just, you know, the survival of the nation. And um, it's a very, very rich literature. But as you, as you said at the beginning, it's not been as well known to the outside world as, as it could be. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because when, no, I said I wouldn't mention the R word, but here I go, I'm going to mention Russian literature. There's a very canonical approach to Russian literature. And of course, that was solidified very much in the Soviet times. But it does seem that there are certain works that everybody's read or everyone was forced to read. There are certain works which, if they don't appear in that canon, tend to be fall into a kind of amnesia of history if they don't fit into a particular pattern or genre or type or they're con you know canonicalized as it were um uh, that, that that they are going to kind of disappear from the national consciousness um is ukrainian literature therefore different in that it doesn't perhaps have this same need for a canon or this process of being quite so you know um prescriptive about what is and isn't read both officially and of course you know uh, in in popular sense yeah it's a good question you know the, the the process of the construction of a cultural canon um you know what what do we mean by that we mean that there's a certain kind of idea existing within a society or internationally perhaps um of the sort of texts, the, the specific list of texts um, that every educated person should read in order to understand um, themselves, their place in the world, their society, the world they live in. Um, but of course, those processes are, th th those canon building processes don't happen innocently or, um, you know, objectively or naturally or organically. They are constructed by people in authority, people in institutions, um, which have certain political um, backgrounds, certain political agendas. Um, 
And, you know, we could talk about two things really, really here. I think on the one hand, the canon of world literature that we might um, have in our heads, whereby we uh, can probably think of a list of writers who are the great writers of history, you know, so Shakespeare and Goethe um, and so on. And we would probably put somebody like Dostoevsky and Tolstoy on that list. Um, these are these are writers that, you know, to your average uh, European or North American and not just and, and well, you know, around the world, these would be the writers you would expect to to read in order to understand what literature is, what what culture is, in a sort of universal sense, in a non-specific, non um, non sort of partisan way that's not defined by some narrow national interests. Um, but you know why why does that canon form in that way? You know those are canons that are put together, I suppose, by intellectuals, by people in academia. Um, by people working in publishing, uh, and they reflect a certain uh, idea of the value of culture, which is often associated with um, political power. So we look at powerful states, and we immediately assume that those states have a powerful, powerful culture. Um, it's often, even to this day, it's defined by empire. You know, the big canonical texts still tend to be stereotypically drawn from English literature, French literature, um, from the European, uh, the, the sort of post-imperial European cultures. Um, and Russian in that, Rus Russian is, is in that, uh, is in that line. Um, and what we miss out are all, all of that cultural activity, that literary activity that happens in between, that happens in places that are not, um, in cultures that are not attached to great political powers, to empires. Um, and that can be, you know, there's so many of those around the world. Um, but looking at Europe, you know, especially places like East Eastern Europe, East Central Europe, Southeastern Europe, you know, if we think about um the Slovak writers or the Latvian writers or the Slovene writers or the Croatians or the Ukrainians or the Belarusians. You know, these are um, cultures that have not traditionally been included into that canon of great world literature because they've been rather neglected as the cultures of small, particular, historically insignificant nations, which probably don't have much to say to the world beyond their own peculiar concerns, which is really not true. Um, you know, and we can see that that there are certain figures from those types of backgrounds that break through into the canon of world culture, like let's say Kafka, for example. Everybody knows that Kafka is one of the great modernists. Um, you know, a Czech Jew writing in German, um, not somebody who comes from this sort of traditional, let's say, um, simple cultural um, cultural background. Someone who's expressing ideas from a very complicated and quite a marginal uh, position, but is doing so in the German language. And that really helps because the German language is widely read, it's respected, it's widely translated. There are many translators from German into many other languages because German is considered an important language because of the power of the German state historically. So it's taught in universities everywhere and so on and so on. And so you can see that, you know, even, even access to that kind of world culture from, from a, a sort of marginal cultural figure like Kafka, let's say, um, comes through the major language very often. So if you're writing in a language like Ukrainian, 
where you don't have the institutions, you don't have the translators, you don't have the respect and the understanding in um, international uh, academia or publishing and so on. It's very, very difficult to break through. The, stru the structures are all against you. Um, so, you know, you can't, you can't get into that canon. Um, and the other thing, you know, you asked about the Ukrainian canon. There certainly is a Ukrainian canon. Um, it changes um, as most canons do. Um, and it's it's been a sort of it's always been an interesting question. Um, what is included in the canon? What's not in, included in the canon? In Soviet times, there was a Ukrainian a Ukrainian Soviet literary canon, but it was very carefully policed. It was very carefully shaped and presented um, in a way which would reduce writers like Taras Shevchenko, like Les Ukrenka, like Ivan Franco. You know, those are the three big canonical writers that we always think about first uh, when we think about Ukrainian literature. Reduce writers who are very complex, very diverse, to a series of sort of ideological cliches, which would be on the one hand, not challenging uh, the cultural hierarchy of the Soviet Union, whereby Russian culture is the culture of civilization and the culture of, uh, and the sort of um, in international culture of the Soviet Union and the culture that's projected onto the outside world. Um, you know, it would retain its inferior, its its kind of um, um, uh, inferior position within that uh, hierarchy, still being probably a little bit higher up than some of the other ones, though. Um, and it also would be, you know, very strictly ideologically, you know, pushed into certain uh, certain readings, you know, of uh, the fact that Les Ukrenka was a socialist uh, and, and was interested in socialist ideas and translated Marx. Um, but she had much more to her besides that as well. You know, she was a modernist. She was a feminist. She was an anti-imperialist. Um, the Soviet canon didn't like Ukrainian anti-imperialism too much. That was usually pushed out of the canon a little bit. Slightly threatening, perhaps, to the status quo. Oh, yeah, I would say very threatening, very threatening. Uh, you know, they, they knew, the Soviets knew that Ukrainian culture was too strong to be completely, you know, kind of completely erased, completely removed. U Ukraine is too big. There are too many Ukrainians. The, the, the cultural achievements made in the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, were too great to just kind of... Uh, pretend that they didn't happen uh, so that the canon had to be adapted and this um, is where i find it really fascinating in that you know if you compare gogol to taras shevchenko you can say well one took the route of um really emphasizing ukrainian identity in fact building the foundations of ukrainian identity it's possible that ukraine would not literally be able to to be as resilient as it is to russian invasion without these cultural identity foundations but then you have gorgel who is in some ways i'm saying written off but in some ways you know classed as a as a russian imperial writer and of course he's been co-opted into the russian canon but his stories are deeply subversive i mean they are amongst the most incredibly critical of that whole imperial culture and its hierarchy extremely kind of biting but because he's been co-opted as russian that criticism somehow is okay. If he was labeled as a Ukrainian, perhaps, and criticizing the imperial model, that perhaps would be seen as far more threatening. So how how does how does that work in terms of both reputation, but also in the way that Gogol or Hall uh, got got away with it? 
Yeah, I mean, Gogol is such a fascinating figure in that in that sense, and and really someone who shows how complicated the the the, the status of culture and literature are in an imperial setting. Uh, and the various dilemmas that come up when someone from the imperial periphery wants to enter into the literary world, which is institutionally um, and politically focused in the in the heart of the empire. Um, I mean, Gogol is another. Gogol is very similar to Kafka in some ways. You know, here's a writer from this peripheral um, sort of geographic um, position, a sort of hybrid uh, cultural identity between different cultural identities, between different languages, um, being informed by one cultural context but going into another, um, but writing in the the big language. You know, Kafka's writing in German and Gogol's writing in Russian, which is why Gogol is, you know, one of the few Ukrainian writers who has broken into world culture via the uh, via the Russian the Russian language um and the and the opportunities that that affords um but that does mean that, Go that Google's tend tended to have been known as a great Russian writer around the world people often don't even know that he's Ukrainian you know the way it's uh, the way he's presented in editions in English you know going back or even taught I think often in universities that fact of him being from Ukraine is either almost not mentioned or seen as something incidental when in fact you know this you Gogol's Ukrainianness um is not just a fact of his biography or of his childhood it's something that's important all the way through his life um and it's also something important in his formation as a writer um you know he becomes a writer he becomes well known as a Ukrainian writer as a writer from the periphery who writes about Ukraine like you said these stories set in Ukraine about the Cossack history, about the pre-imperial uh, history of Ukraine, which he was fascinated by. Um, and he brings those to the Russian reader. And through this, under this kind of mask of self-deprecating humor, um, which some Ukrainians object to, because they think that Gogol was kind of making 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 a mockery of, of Ukrainian culture by presenting it as kind of folksy and funny. But He's also smuggling in these quite subtle challenges to the empire. You know, when he has Cossacks come from Ukraine and go to St. Petersburg um, and makes it quite clear that they don't understand Ukrainian. Uh, they don't understand Russian. They don't speak Russian very well. There's a cultural difference. Um, the, the, the sort of narrators of his stories speak to the Russian readers with this kind of slight... Um, twinkle in their eye you know I'll explain to Ukraine to you you probably won't really be able to understand it properly um, but here is this culture that is different from what you are that you that I, I have to explain I have to explain a whole lot of strange words that you won't understand because it is culturally distinct it is culturally different it has a different history um, and it's also considerably more vibrant and full of life than your culture in St. Petersburg, than the imperial culture. Um, and, so, you know, so Gogol was doing very subtle things like that. He was, and, and, and you know, we know that he, at one point in his life, did have an ambition to move back to Ukraine. Uh, he wanted to research and teach Ukrainian history. Um, he refused to accept a job teaching Russian history. Um, you know, it was something that was really not incidental to who he was but it's also because he's been 
appropriated into Russian, the Russian canon so much, many in Ukraine also consider him to be sort of um, someone who abandoned Ukraine and went over to the empire. And he has that kind of sort of ambigu um, ambiguous uh, status, um, which is is also true in many ways. You know, he was Gogol was not against empire in as far as we know. You know, he sort of challenged certain ways in which the empire saw Ukraine and saw its past. Um, but he was quite he was generally quite a conservative, uh, conservative in that sense in his political views. You know, he wasn't like Shevchenko, who was a radical anti-imperialist. Um, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't somebody who was expressing a certain idea of Ukraine historically in terms of identity, culturally. And there are, we, we have writers as well, don't we? I mean, P.G. Woodhouse is a good example of people who perhaps don't understand the sort of black and white nature of politics. They they exist on a slightly different realm. So just because he's not interested in, in that level of politics, I mean, it, it, he's, he's perhaps uh, interested in, in something else. In terms of his satire, though, do you think it was important, him being an outsider, him being able to compare one culture to another? Because his satires are extraordinarily biting, uh, and they get to the heart, as you say, of the colourless, brutal, hierarchical system. Uh, extremely paranoid system as well, uh, with people you know, trying, to, trying to compete for, for titles and ranks and so on. Um, and it seems to me maybe there's some commonality there with Repin, who again, I, I loved his pictures. I've seen them in, in in many galleries without having any understanding whatsoever that he was Ukrainian until uh, really, fairly recently. But once you realize that, you realize that, you know, he's, he's able to actually see things from the point of view of an outsider to be able to compare it to other frames of reference, which become, I think, quite important. Yeah, I think that outsider, that kind of peripheral um, perspective does allow you to see things in a different way. Um, you know, and I mean per peripheral, marginal, not in some kind of sense of judging the value or judging the importance or quality of the work. I mean, just, you know, it's just, it's purely about geopolitics. Um, what you What you see is defined by where you are. Um, and looking at the looking at the empire from the edge of the empire, from a from a part of the empire which, until very recently, had a different type of history. You know, when Gogol's born, um, beginning of the nineteenth century, Ukraine has only really been you know, large parts of Ukraine have have quite recently come under Russian control. Um, you know, if we think of the expansion into southern Ukraine and into Crimea, it's only in the last few decades that this has really been consolidated. Um, it's not ancient history that Ukraine had its hegemony, it had its kind of Cossack state with a with a measure of of, of autonomy and independence, and that's it. it it's it, it recurs again and again in his stories, um, and that's one thing that makes him actually in some ways very similar to Shevchenko. Uh, you know, Shevchenko is Ukraine's national poet, um, is someone who was thinking about history a lot. Uh, he was thinking about how history defines who we are, how we can mine history for information that can help us in the present. Um, he was looking at, he was forming historical mythologies through his through his poetry. You know, he was doing this kind of um, epic, uh, this sort of reimagining of a national epic in his poetry, and he was looking at that that Cossack past that Gogol was was in, was also looking at, but they were doing it in different genres. They were doing it in in a different key. But they're they're looking at the same things from the same place, 
Um, and that allows you also to, I think, diagnose certain things in the political system you exist in. You know, and you talked about Google satires, um, something which, you know, and Google was, was a very incisive satirist, but also quite a, an anxious one. You know, he was quite anxious about not being seen as being too anti-authority or too critical um, or being subversive in some way. He was quite, he was quite worried about that. Um, Shevchenko, less worried <laughs> probably, but uh, but also, you know, didn't, his satirical poems were not published openly. He knew that they wouldn't, they wouldn't pass censorship. Um, but he also, you know, both of them have, both of them speak in their work about the uh, structures of empire, the sort of corruption and violence that's involved in those structures. Um, and they're able to they're able to see that perhaps more clearly because they're coming from a part of the world which has a different history, which has a slightly different attitude towards authority. You know, when you come from Cossack Ukraine, which in fact in the 18th, 17th centuries going back, did have a sort of chaotic form of democracy operating within it. It wasn't, it was, it was a part of the world which managed to sort of exist outside of the monarchies and the dynastic empires um not as a state you know in, in the modern sense but as a place where political authority political power was imagined and practiced in, in a different way um and where you know individual freedoms um were imagined and practiced in a different way than they, than they were in in, in russia itself mm -hmm. And of course, you know, you could take the example of the Novgorod Republic, of which we don't know a huge amount, but again, it had a, a very different uh, political cultural system than, say, uh, Muscovy did. And I guess we don't know a huge amount about it, but but other places like Suzdal, Vladimir and others, the same as Kiev would have had a, a different, and even within areas of Ukraine. But of course, one by one, uh, the Muscovite uh, political, uh, let's say, methodology, uh, essentially genocided those political systems. Um, how important is uh, Ukrainian identity and literature to the fact that not only has it seemed to have retained and kept alive some of those alternative cultures, it managed to keep them through the Soviet Union to the point where they could reemerge in an independent state. And, and now, this this extraordinary um i'd almost get david and goliath struggle it's it's not because ukraine has shown that it's in in many respects it's it's a giant in uh in, in innovation and uh, being able to organize itself to resist what role there is is literature and uh, an identity and how on earth did it survive this tumultuous history yeah the survival of of ukrainian um, culture and language also um, is quite remarkable when we think about some of the languages of the region or in other parts of Europe and the world that have died out. Um, you know, it really, considering the level of repression, um, it's quite remarkable that the Ukrainian language did survive um, and looks depending where you on your perspective looks pretty healthy. You know, you know, you know that Belarusians who care about their literature and their language often look at Ukraine as this amazing success story, even though many Ukrainians might 
often feel anxious about their culture and their language, even still today. Um, you know, we can look at other places, you know, like I, I come from Scotland, you could look at the, the status of Gaelic or the Scots language, two languages which really declined, um, which sort of don't really function as modern literary languages today. Um, but, but the Ukrainian language, which went through such horrendous oppressions, did survive. Um, how did it manage to do that? It's a good question. I think in part it's to do with um, the fact that Ukraine is a big country, so there are many speakers. Um, it was an agricultural country for much of its history, so the you know, if we think about the Russian Empire, literacy rates were very low, so actually it didn't manage to um, bring the Russian language to the Ukrainian peasantry in any meaningful way. Um, so that you know the language survives in every in everyday use for the majority of the population right into the twentieth century quite comfortably. Um, when even when you know literary activity, publishing, and so on is being policed and and restricted. Um, there's I think there's also just been a a really uh, that sense of a, a certain national community and a political identity has always has been strong since the 19th century in particular you know i think you, you can see that it um the idea transforms through the centuries of what, what what exactly ukraine is um what it means to be ukrainian in the modern sense and and, and with the name ukrainians and ukraine that sort of crystallizes more later in the 19th century, but it doesn't mean that it's not based on things that were there before. Um, so there's always a sense that this part of the world, you know, there, there is a distinct history, there's a distinct um, cultural tradition, a religious tradition, um, and it's connected to a sense of, um, I suppose, defending that community against external influences and you've had them come from the west and you've had them come from the east and also from the south you know we think about the tatars uh, and the sort of ottoman influence um, and so that adversity in many ways has has shaped the community uh, and the long experience of um, existing in that position of having to fend off um, you know pressure attacks from outside solidifies a sense of identity um, and i think ukraine has just got really used over the centuries to defending themselves, um, their religion, their community, their culture against attack from outside. So they just became experts at it, I think, you know. Um, they became experts in cultural survival underground. You know, and I, th and I think it just became very, very difficult for that to be entirely removed in the Ukrainian sense. And of course, a, a, an element of, of uh, Ukrainian-speaking uh, people ended up in the diaspora, but also elements ended up in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So there was a certain enclave outside of that uh, sort of harsher, because it's still an imperial entity, but perhaps you know less uh, less persecution and more opportunities uh, for that to to uh, continue. Uh, without yeah the intense persecution that we saw uh, by by the Russian Empire, yeah for sure. And I mean that that the fact that not all of Ukraine was under Russian control was really important, and and it's it's a really important thing to pick up on. Um, we did have the western part of Ukraine under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
in Poland between the wars. Um, but we see, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I find really fascinating studying Ukrainian cultural history is that you can almost see two parallel realities of how a state, how, how a culture can evolve in different political, uh, in different political environments. One's in the very harsh reality of the Russian Empire, and then in the in the less harsh uh, conditions of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you've got a sort of a version of Ukrainian culture that feels a bit more like the way that Polish or Czech or Hungarian or Slovak cultures are are developing, and then you've got another one that that's having to deal with a very different kind of uh, set of circumstances. And obviously, they speak to each other. Um, and they help each other. Um, so you know, it's it's kind of interesting when you look at the nineteen late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Um, conditions are freer in, uh, you know, in, in Lviv and, and in the the western part. Um, you know, writers from the Russian Empire, Ukrainian writers, are sending their work abroad to be published in Lviv or maybe in you know in Prague or Budapest could be. Um, and then these things are being smuggled back into the empire, you know, illegally. Um, but at the same time, even though the conditions are more free in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a lot of the real uh, kind of the most powerful articulations of Ukrainian culture and, and identity are coming from within the Russian Empire. When you think about figures like Lesya Ukrainka, obviously Shevchenko first, we have Lesya Ukrainka afterwards. Um, there's a there's a sort of sense of um, you know you 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 encounter um, Western Ukrainians coming into the Russian Empire and kind of admiring how you know great Ukraine is has this kind of sense of itself which is which seems to be strangely more secure uh, and more well developed and more kind of um, I suppose. Uh, has this kind of fighting spirit in the way that they sort of feel like it's a bit lacking in the West, you know? Um, so the, the the two different parts are are fueling one another, one another, helping one another, you know, people, texts, ideas are circulating. Um, and that and that is that's another key thing, which, you know, if we could speculate if all of Ukrainian literary his, uh, activity had been within one empire, within the Russian Empire, what would have happened? Um, you know, the, the course of the cultural history might have been a bit different. And the, uh, Belarus is perhaps an example. I mean, maybe Ukraine never would have been quite as serious as that, but there, the Belarusian language is essentially facing extinction. And uh, uh, I think the, the, the core literary works were almost certainly mostly written in, in Russian by um, by writers in, in, in Belarus. In this 30-year period, and especially under the extraordinary pressure of Maidan and the subsequent invasions, now full-scale invasion, do you see this process of these sort of twin track or two different sort of cultural tracks? Are we seeing a, a blending or a merging or a synthesis between them? Or is Lviv still a, a driving force, as it were, on this sort of, you know, the cutting edge of literary development, publishing industry and so on? Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think you 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 don't really, I wouldn't say that you you see any kind of, particular legacy of that 19th century, late 19th century divide. Um, in today's Ukrainian literary processes, um, you know, U Ukrainian culture does come 
under on Ukrainian territories basically comes under one state with the creation of uh, Soviet Ukraine and then and then after you know the, the western parts are annexed after the war um you know so finally um so after the, after world war 2 Ukrainian writers are working within a Ukrainian state, the Ukrainian Soviet state, uh, as part of a single single process. Of course, then then like you said, there's the diaspora, um, and you you have quite a powerful diaspora literature developing uh, outside of Ukraine in Europe and and, and in North America. Um, so there are there, there there are certain distinct trends and paths of development in that sense but probably after the second world war literature in ukraine is developing as part of the same process albeit very much kind of beleaguered um especially under under stalin um but when you come to the post you know the the independent independent ukraine um it's a single it's a single literary process but it's quite a diverse and quite a complex one you know it's it's not centralized and one one of the 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 really striking things about literature in the 90s in ukraine is that you know it's not all happening in kiev um you know kiev is not it's 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 not the sort of be all and end all of of ukrainian literature wherever where everybody goes and and writes um you have a very strong regionalism in Ukrainian literature writers and it's not just about western Ukraine you know it's, there's Lviv writers and there's Ivano-Frankivsk writers you know and Ivano-Frankivsk which is quite a relatively small city was one of the real centers of literary activity in in the in the 90s and the 2000s you know we had some of the most exciting literary journals published there um it was the center of Ukrainian postmodernism you know, Yuri Androkhovich is the, is the the big writer who comes out of out of there. But we have Yuri Izdrik, Taras Prochasko. These are the kind of the real kind of cult writers of the of the nineties and and two thousands, and they're coming from this small city. Um, you also have uh, you know some quite important writers coming from places like Zhitomer, um, or from you know from the southeast. Kharkiv remains important. You know, Serhiy Zhdan, who comes from that region. Um, so this it's quite uh, it's quite diverse and diffuse, um, in that sense. Um, possibly things have become a bit more concentrated in Kiev. Maybe um, people tend to writers do tend to move there, but um, there's still, you know, it's it's one of the one of the great things about Ukraine is its regional diversity. Crimea as well as you know as a place where. Uh, we've we've seen in the last uh, few years a, a sort of revival in Crimean Tatar culture in a certain sense. You know, we see the the cinema of Crimean Tatars uh, in music, uh, in in literature. We're seeing more uh, literary activity and translation between Crimean Tatar and Ukrainian. Um, so it's certainly, and that that is probably probably is to do with the different histories of Ukraine. Uh, the different histories of different parts, the part, you know, the fact that they've been in different uh, empires and different states, you know, Chernivtsi, we could talk about as one having a very specific um, cultural identity where they think about their connections to the German-speaking world, to Jewish Chernivtsi, to Romanian Chernivtsi. You know, there's you go to different parts of Ukraine, and there are all these different interesting little connections um, that you don't have in other places. So, you know, it, it, it makes the cultural landscape very, very interesting. 
And again, I'm going to unfortunately ask a question that relates this back to the big culture next door, so-called. Um, you get far less sense of regional identities in, in Russian literature. Um, in fact, a lot of the themes, most by no means all writers and all works, but how people define themselves to power is, is a recurring theme in Russian literature, either in opposition to power or trying to find some purpose within uh you know the the orthodoxy or the system that exists but it's that constant reference point um to you and and power and its influence back on you um does ukraine have a sort of similar obsession or is it as you mentioned earlier far more iconoclastic or diverse in terms of the kind of themes that you you find across um you know the broad spread of ukrainian literature i mean dealing with power um is is a big part of ukrainian culture um it's there early on it's it's still there um but certainly there's the, the overwhelming sense you get is of um a culture which is interested in uh overturning these hierarchies and challenging them in um approaching authority with a sense of irreverence and mockery often um the the idea of freedom liberty in ukrainian culture is really really strong you know you, you find it in shevchenko it's one of the, the key words in, in shevchenko uh being you know voya which is this kind of is is freedom but also entails an association with one's will one's agency so um it's not just a set of external conditions but it's a kind of something that comes from within a sense of you know practicing freedom uh, yourself um and you see that really um throughout ukrainian ukrainian literature if you look at lesi ukrainka she's off she's always uh, searching for these stories in her modernist dramas set in you know uh with which have biblical settings or set in some classical world or um reimagining things like the Don Juan myth. She's always looking at how uh, individuals can uh, negotiate power structures, how they can find a voice, um, you know, the, the, the freedom to speak, the freedom to, uh, and also the, the importance of being heard um, in relation to women. You know, she's very, very much interested in looking at how women can be free um in these circumstances and how women have to negotiate different kinds of patriarchy for example you know which would be an imperial patriarchy but also the patriarchy of the imperial resistance it's a really really interesting thing to to explore uh, and she's doing that you know more than 100 years ago um that yeah so that sense of liberty of freedom her, you know, a, a, another big example from the time is Kobylanska, or Olga Kobylanska, who's a writer who comes from Chernivtsi. She's brought up, again, very sort of complicated cultural background. She speaks German. Uh, she's brought up in German culture, um, chooses to write in Ukrainian uh, as a young woman uh, and translating herself between German and, and Ukrainian. And also in her work, um, sort of exploring how can... Uh, a young woman in the modern world exists outside of the patriarchal institutions of marriage, uh, for example. How can she um, exist in the, the sort of provincial society, European society of the time as an independent person, to be a creative person, to realize herself? Um, so that sense of, you know, the, the, the seeking freedom 
in, in all kinds of ways, um, not just freedom from empire, not just freedom from political oppression, but freedom in all in all kinds of different ways. It's, um, it's right through Ukrainian literature. Um, and it's always, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's very hard to find, um, you know, a Ukrainian writer who would be sort of seriously entertaining any ideas of how we can exist alongside some sort of um, some sort of autocratic power, or how we can accommodate it, or, or or entertaining the idea that this might be a good idea, um, or that or the empire might be a good idea. You know that, that, that there might be something like a, a sort of civilizing mission which gives one one's own culture the right to conquer others and subjugate them to oneself. That just doesn't exist. Um, it's always challenging that and kicking back against it. And the last question really sort of bounces on that to perhaps the darkest um, manifestation of, of empire. And of course, it's terror in the 1930s, where you have something called the um, Ukrainian Renaissance, executed Renaissance, where um, avant-garde and upcoming writers were essentially... Um, killed in their prime uh, many before they were able to uh, one would assume produce you know extraordinary uh, masterpieces in their later careers um what could you describe you know that event and of course the impact it had and what survived that process and maybe get a sense of 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 what was lost because it was never created yeah it's a great point um you know if we I always sort of think that we could um, we could compile compile an imaginary library of all the books that weren't written, um, because the writers were were executed by the Soviets or were exiled by the Tsars, um, you know, or died far younger than they should have, whether just you know through um, ill health, like Shevchenko. You know, Shevchenko's Shevchenko wasn't killed by the Russian Empire, but he was sent into military exile for ten years, and he came back. Uh, um, you know, a, a, an ill man and probably didn't live as long as he would have otherwise um, after going through that extremely harsh experience. Um, or those writers, like like you said, the ones who came into Ukrainian literature in the, the 1920s, around about that time, um, and then are shot, you know, in prison, shot in the 1930s. And, and often these were writers who were in their 20s, 30s, you know, maybe early forties, um, writers who'd who'd often just you know written their first big, first novel or for, you know done, done a couple of collections and were really talented, really interesting writers, and then you know those careers are cut short. So we can only speculate of you know what what didn't happen in Ukrainian culture. Um, it's a sort of the legacy of that is complicated. I think you know you 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 referred to that term, the executed Renaissance, which comes later. Uh, which comes from the 1950s, um, they didn't obviously didn't think of themselves as an executed renaissance. They did think of themselves as a renaissance. Um, they thought of themselves in terms of their um, left-wing ideology, most of them. Um, you know, we can sort of forget that this was um, communists essentially murdering other communists. These were not kind of right-wing Ukrainian nationalists or anything like that. They were they were often they were accused of being so, but they weren't. Uh, they were they were left-wing and to a large degree intellectuals who were looking for a way to make 
um, some kind of socialist uh, or, or communist Ukraine function. Um, most of them thought, uh, m many of them tried to do that independent of Moscow or, and, or thought that it would be much better to be more independent culturally and political, politically from Moscow. They were trying to create that kind of um, political and cultural uh, difference and distance. Um, but it has kind of the fact that they, that they were shot, the fact of this great cultural trauma has made them, turned them into these kind of martyrs um, for Ukrainian culture um, and sort of eclipsed what they were actually doing and a lot of their ideas and their, and their aesthetics, which were often, often they were trying to actually overcome the kind of obsession with national, the national struggle as they saw it, even though, you know, like I said, we, we have predecessors like Lesy Ukrenka, like Orha Kobylanska, who are doing things beyond that, more interesting than just talking about national struggle. Um, they wanted to get away from, you know, the, the, the sense that Ukrainian culture is, an, is, a, is a rural culture, that it's about peasants. They wanted to talk about the cities, which at that time were, were quite russified um, because of the, the 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 processes, urbanization processes in the Russian Empire, they were trying to reclaim those cities. They were trying to create um, a new avant-garde, modern, European-orientated um, urban literature. Um, which is, you know, when you read the poetry of people like Semenko or Mike Johansson, um, the prose of Piet Mohilny, it's really really exciting stuff, you know, and, and it's and it's about um it's about life in the modern world you know it's about being an individual in the crowd it's about um it's about uh sexuality you know it's it's about all of these kind of uh so it's about all of these kind of things um and that sense of them being the executed renaissance sort of reduces them to this to the to the status of national martyrs um you know when 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 in actual fact these were the ukrainian Joyce's and you know, uh, whatever the, the the Virginia Wolves or whatever the, the sort of the sort of the modernist avant-garde writers who had modernist avant-garde concerns and aesthetics and um, um, so that you know that that process of recovering the recovering this moment in Ukrainian culture has been sort of complicated because then those those writers also their names are erased from literary history under the Soviet Union. They're sort of recovered partially after Stalin, you know, in the 1960s, uh, and then later in the in the late 80s, the 90s. So you, you what you get is a sense that later Ukrainian writers are sort of living through modernism at this kind of delay with a delay. You know, so the modernism avant-garde comes in, then it's then it's kind of almost buried by the Soviet authorities. Um, then it's rediscovered, then it's sort of buried again, then it's rediscovered again, and it keeps keeps sort of coming back. And you get this really interesting uh, moments where you know you get the writers in the eighties, nineties who are postmodernists, but they're also sort of recovering and they're still finding the avant-garde writers and the modernist writers. And it's almost like postmodernism and modernism are happening at the same time. Um, it's very, very exciting. You can see it in Serhii Zadan's poetry, for example. It's really inspired by that stuff that's been written in Kharkiv in the 1920s, for example. You know, this of, this of avant-garde, the Ukrainian avant-garde, and he's coming at that, you know, however many decades later, reworking it through this kind of uh, much more contemporary 
postmodern influenced uh, stance. So it's 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 you know it's a story of um, cultural erasure of cultural violence, but it's also a story of cultural um, resilience and creative you know the creative recovery of of these things. And now you've got a new generation of writers, and already some of those writers have the same problem they they've not been allowed to to get to the full peak of their creative powers victoria melina of course is one of the the well uh, most well known of that but you also have writers and cultural figures who are more acutely aware than ever that people are fighting to allow their voices to be heard and of course you have a lot of writers who are actually been um serving in the military since 2013 and and, and many more uh, in the current full scale. So there's this, this, what's the impact of that, this extraordinary merging of fighting, writing, creating, surviving? Yeah, I think that, that you, you put it really well. There is this kind of merging of um, the military, the civilian, the cultural. Um, these things are intertwined in Ukraine. Um, there are writers who are serving in the army, who have served in the army. There are writers who became writers through their service in the army. Um, you know, there's a big now, a big subgenre of Ukrainian literature, which is you know veterans literature. Um, you, cultural activity is obviously orientated in many ways towards the war. Ukrainian writers are thinking about the war. They're they're writing about they're. they're but they're doing it in interesting ways. You know, it's not just literature has not become some kind of propaganda tool to support the war. Um, far from it. You know, there's 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 no sort of censorship or pressure in that sense. You know, people people write often quite um, difficult things about the experience of serving in the army. If you know, if you read Artem Chekh and the way that he writes about army service, it's not uh, it's not idealized in any way. But it's it's trying to convey to the Ukrainian reading public, but you know, potentially, hopefully, in translation, which is becoming, thankfully, more and more frequent that these things are being translated. Some sense of what it means to fight a war, um, as an individual, as someone who is just an ordinary person caught up in this war, and that allows you to understand what the war is really about. You know, because we we think about the war in terms of territory, in terms of you know, strategies and tactics and weapons, but what the people who are actually fighting in this war are fighting for is for their lives, for their families, for their communities, for their, their way of life, for their culture, for their history, their identity, for, you know, for everything that is going to be threatened by Russian occupation. Um, and that can be a really difficult thing to do. It can be a traumatic thing, a traumatic experience, a disheartening experience, um, it can be uh, an experience that makes you question yourself and, <laughs> and and many and your society in many many difficult ways. It provokes difficult conversations. Um, but Ukrainian writers are really, from what I can see, they're really coming at this in an honest way, in an open way. They're they're looking for that language to talk about this extremely difficult. Um, experience as a it, it's almost as as a kind of process as, as a kind of therapeutic process for their own society um, and you can see the way that you know if you go to a literary reading in ukraine right now 
and I was lucky lucky enough to be a couple um, a few months ago during the war. It's they're packed out, and people are really turning up to buy books, to listen to writers, to have those conversations. It's you know it's it's a really something that you 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 don't experience at literary events you know in the UK or elsewhere. It's it, the stakes are different, the energy is is different, and and you feel like. You know, the literature is really doing something important and worthwhile. Well, that's a brilliant place to end. That's a fantastic insight. And uh, it's incredibly sort of thought provoking that in the midst of all of this, this is what people, this is one of the things that actually helps them to get the energy they need to find purpose, get through the day, do their job, their volunteering and all the million things we know that Ukrainians are doing and dealing with. Um, thank you so much for joining the channel. I find this absolutely fascinating and um, I look forward to, to bumping into you at future events and, and firing more questions at you potentially. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and um, let's get some of those writers' names as well into the description of the video. Uh, I know people are always keen to sort of follow up. So we'll try to list some of those out and share them with the audience. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you so much for the invitation.